This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Joe Slovic, and we're discussing ransomware. So our last few shows on InfoSec have been sort of you know, what is going on in InfoSec? So the show has been going on, the podcast has been going on for about a decade now. So since 2012, 2013, and a lot of, a lot has developed in InfoSec. So, you know, things have gotten more aggressive, weirder, more invasive, however you want to describe it. But our last few shows, starting with Matt DeVos, and then with J.D. Wild, and now with Joe Slovic, and then at the end of the month with Sarah Turn, are about these large questions and large trends in information security. So last week, uh, when we spoke to JD Work, it was about offensive infosec as a general idea, and now today we're talking about ransomware. So please welcome Joe Slovic. Hi, Joe. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. So I want to start off with a very basic question, which is, what is or what do you consider to be ransomware? Because I think. You know, there's this sort of two sort of ideas of ransomware, and that's like WannaCry, Netya in one category, and then sort of the cryptors and the the sort of bcrypt, the sort of early 2010s sort of ransomware. But when we tackle it as an analytic problem and as a information security analyst, like how do we think about ransomware? Right, and I think. There's no very simple answer, and the answers shifted over time a little bit too. So if you go back to the early 2010s when you had things like Lockheed and you know whatever early examples, you had malware delivered on a per victim basis that you know through an office macro or drive by download or something similar would then launch a encryption routine on that specific host and maybe connected network drives or any something directly associated with that victim and that was it and then we started moving a little you know as we move forward in time into 2017 things get a little bit more interesting as we start getting into self-propagating worms the eternal series exploits enabled some of that, including uh, WannaCry, which was you know, a ransomware event, but one with a state-sponsored aspect to it, as that was subsequently linked to uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea operations. But at the same time, it was still ransomware, maybe not the best designed piece of software out there and probably spread a little bit too far. Although, thanks to Marcus Hutchins, it didn't spread as far as it probably could have, or at least wreak as much damage as it probably could have, but still notionally designed to make money. Then things got really interesting a couple of months later, both technically and in terms of intent, because we had Netya, Napetya, pick a different name for it, doesn't matter, that was subsequently linked to maybe not everyone's favorite entity, but certainly a very popular entity, Sandworm, went to 
Russian strategic interests. And what was interesting about this is both uh, on a technical level, we had propagation while the SMB vulnerabilities that were part of the leaked NSA tools, the Eternal series were part of it. The main item driving propagation for that ransomware forward was sort of dynamic credential capture and reuse by incorporating code from things like Mimikatz into the malware so that once it was introduced into a network, in this case through the MEDOC supply chain attack in Ukraine, it was able to then start just ripping additional credentials and then moving laterally within victim networks purely on that and only really using the SMB vulnerabilities as sort of a last resort if credential reuse didn't work out. But what was interesting from a sort of purpose or strategic perspective is, and there was excellent anal analysis of this done by uh, Matsushe and analyst at Kaspersky, that it really wasn't ransomware. It was more effectively a disruptor or data destroyer in that the encryption routine used was uh, designed in such a way that you couldn't recover files. So the adversary in this case used a ransomware-like capability to essentially achieve functional data destruction. So this really isn't ransomware, but cyber warfare or whatever at this point masquerading as ransomware, which starts getting really interesting. Because after this, and we see shifts in the ransomware, in the criminal ransomware environment of moving away from per victim targeting or single victim targeting uh, away from self-propagating worms because those can get kind of dangerous and spread maybe a little bit too far and maybe attract a little bit more law enforcement attention that you would like to the sort of big game hunting that we started to see with things like Lakagoga and Ryuk in late 2018, early 2019. And we start getting things like the whole of network encryption where sort of interactive operations, hackers on keyboard, breach networks, get domain admin, and then leverage some combination of legitimate tools, administrator level access, and maybe some off the shelf uh, sort of hack tools to then seed malware throughout an entire network and execute it roughly simultaneously leading to many of the stories that we see now. But sort of underneath all of that, we get really interesting and kind of questionable events. So, you know, we look at things like even just within the last couple of weeks, we had major events at Honda Motors, at NL, the Italian energy conglomerate. And then so many examples, it seems like every week there's a new major organization, city government, or other entity that gets victimized by this sort of attack. But then if you look at the margins, it's some of the events in question, there are more curious things, which is really where I get more interested because I, I don't really deal with criminal malware all that much. You know, it's interesting for some, it's just not what I focus on typically. But you know, looking at Napetia as a example of some of the possibilities that are engendered or created by sort of masquerading as or riding the wave of overall criminal activity is that it opens up the space for some really interesting avenues for malicious entities, especially malicious state-sponsored entities, to hide or masquerade operations as a criminal entity to provide some sort of deniable or confusion into their operations. So one of the items that piqued my interest on this and really started to get me into this topic is there's certainly 
many people who are greater experts in the criminal ransomware marketplace than I am, and I don't pretend to know more or speak for them, uh, gentlemen like Vitaly Kremenez and the Malware Hunt team and, and others. But when we started to look at things like the Norse Kidro incident in Norway, but also impacting that organization's global operations in March of 2019, that we start seeing some really fascinating possibilities where sort of incorporating a, you know, using a known variant of ransomware, a Locker Goga variant, but one that was unique relative to all other Locker Goga incidents in that it also had some disruptive elements, disabling system network cards and changing usernames and, uh, or changing passwords for local user accounts on systems and other things that would make recovery or even viewing ransom notes significantly difficult in doing this across a entire domain simultaneously. So now you start wondering like, okay, was this designed for monetization or given the barriers that were deliberately put in place by the ransomware executors and authors, was this something more? And moving forward, like, okay, well, maybe this is an outlier. But then even just a about six weeks ago, as we're talking in mid-June right now, maybe not quite that long, maybe just a couple of weeks ago, we had the Ministry of Justice in Taiwan come out publicly, and this didn't receive anywhere near as much attention as I thought it should have, publicly blamed ransomware events at the National Petroleum Distribution Company and potentially on some of the big chip fabrication companies in Taiwan that had suffered ransomware incidents, and so that this was the work of the Chinese government. That gets very interesting very quickly because we had events that seemed, you know, again, ransomware, trying to make money. Okay, what? it's a big deal, but it kind of blends in again with all the other activity in place. But then we start throwing potential government involvement in this activity. It's like, well, why are they doing this? And presumably the People's Republic of China, if they are in fact uh, responsible for this, doesn't need to make, you know, a bunch of Bitcoin off of this. They have other sources of revenue. It's a little different than North Korea, which tries to do all sorts of interesting things to raise money from ransomware to stealing Bitcoin and compromising Bitcoin exchanges, etc. So maybe we start getting into entities like, well, if you encrypt all the data and throw away the key, that's a really good way to try and mask other operations. So it seems like ransomware is starting to provide a shadowy space that other entities can sort of hide in for other operations. But then in parallel to that, and you know, my day job, I focus primarily on industrial cybersecurity. We've also seen a shift in the criminal market now where it's not even so much we have ransomware, we're going to hold your data and you know, pay, pay us up or you'll never get it back, but also a subtle shift to something we can probably more accurately call extortionware now. And we've seen this with, in the case, for example, of Alexon, a company that manages the energy trading markets within the United Kingdom that was victimized in May of 2020. That, yes, the data was encrypted, looks like the company was recovering on their own, but in addition to the data encryption bit, you also had data theft and then the threats and subsequent realization of those threats of data disclosure. So doing things like publishing user and employee information, passport photos and other items, adding additional incentive or you know, holding another gun to a victim's head and giving them reason to pay up. But yes, you might have good backups, but we stole information as well and we'll 
reveal your secrets unless you give us money. So it's been a really interesting environment that's evolved uh, in interesting directions over the last 10 years. And, you know, for the first five to seven years of that, I treated it as more of an annoyance than anything else. But then in the last two to three years, it's really become an interesting threat space, both from a criminal monetization perspective and then as a possible avenue for state-sponsored disruption or other activities to masquerade as in order to produce deniable or similarly sort of shady operations. Interesting. So it almost seems like the story of ransomware is the story of possibilities because it like it almost seems like ransomware has existed since 1989, but <clears throat> it didn't become a widespread problem until you know the evolution of cryptocurrency. Right. And then you, you've already kind of touched on the eternal sort of eternal series of exploits that gave us that underlined WannaCry and then not Petya. So I'm wondering when we talk about ransomware and we sort of examine ransomware, you know, what can we learn about adversarial adaptation and offensive evolution from ransomware? You know, it's mm-hmm. what can we is there a broader sort of understanding or insight into how off, like the offensive use of software, you know, what can we learn from it? Or is it just, you know, ransomware is its own thing and we, we kind of have to view it in isolation and there's not, you know, a lot of lessons to be learned. I think because it, ransomware combines a potent mix of flexibility the ability to operate in multiple manners. And then, like you said, ransomware as a business model, for lack of a better way of putting it, didn't really get enabled until you had a reasonably deniable sort of confidential way of transferring and getting funds in terms of cryptocurrency markets. So yes, ransomware as a theory or even in practice goes back to distributing malicious floppy disks at an AIDS conference in the late 80s, which is mind-boggling. And it's kind of hung around the margins ever since. But then yes, once you start getting Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these other items out there to provide a way of efficiently monetizing these infections, now things get interesting. And I think what what we've seen over this period of evolution is something that, like you said, you know, there's an, a threat evolution aspect of this too. That when you throw in the aspects of monetization, attempting to reach efficiencies in operation, because really, you know, we can call this criminal, but it operates like a business. If you're not making money and you're not doing so in the most efficient way, then you should probably be doing something else. And we've seen that with how ransomware has evolved. Whereas, you know, initial samples were per user, per victim, single computer incidents very much impactful for home users, but on a corporate level, it's like, uh, okay, Bill in accounting had his computer locked. That stinks. Hopefully we didn't lose a file share in the process, but we can wipe, rebuild, and recover that machine. Well, the criminals were paying attention or the bad actors were paying attention and realized, okay, well, we can do this onesie twosie for a Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin, something along those lines, operations, but the real money is holding entire organizations' feet to the fire. And that brings us to both the, initially some of the warmable items like WannaCry, which, you know, that got hard to control, I think. And if there was a lesson to be learned from that, it's like, oh, you know, something that goes completely off the rails like that, now you start attracting the attention of law enforcement, national governments, you know, 
real security issues start cropping up and you might find yourself, you know, the North Korean government has a certain level of impunity that they can wage. But if you're a bunch of scammers in Bulgaria or something like that, you might start attracting more attention than your political top cover might be willing to deal with. So then we start moving into somewhat controlled, but whole of organization threats, like we saw with the introduction of things like Lakagoga initially, Ryuk, and then getting on to uh, Megacortex and so many other variants that have emerged over the last two years of like, okay, single user, even if semi-automated, not very efficient, not a very good way to get a good score right away to, all right, let's take out an entire organization by, you know, fairly common sort of pen tester 101 techniques, get into the network somehow. It looks like remote authentication, brute forcing, or credential replays, the favorite at the moment, but you can throw whatever works in there, phishing, exploits, but whatever is a means to get inside a network. And then getting to domain admin, figuring out a way to either harvest as many credentials as possible or compromising the entire victim domain to monetize an infection against an entire organization, create a massive single event payout. So like even in looking at some of the Ekans examples that have taken place in 2020, we had Presenius Medical Care in, or Medical Group in May. We had Honda and NL just this past week in June. You know, we're not seeing campaigns that are hitting dozens of organizations at once, but rather a single organization and talking to some of the experts in the criminal side of things, you know, there's a level of customer care or uh, customer service that comes with these. It doesn't make sense if you're trying to make money off of these things to try and make decryption of data a pain. So sort of concomitantly with the ability to deploy and do this in a fairly uh, labor-intensive, but very efficient in terms of a payout way as you negotiate for the unlock of an entire network is you've created also this simultaneous market or negotiation space for how to decrypt and how to bargain and figure out a way of payment. And given that this is continuing activity and tracking some of the cryptocurrency wallets that are referenced in these things, it seems to be quite successful and it's not going away anytime soon. And, you know, it, it almost seems... Maybe in a couple of years from now, if the, the people involved can figure out the technical, how to understand the technical details, that you could even write a Harvard Business Review case study on the evolution of ransomware markets for both the technical evolution to try and gain greater efficiencies for operation to better monetize infections, along with the customer service and customer care aspect of you know, trying to make sure that data is recoverable. We certainly see examples of poorly written ransomware that are out there, but genuine, generally speaking, the market as it exists for this sort of criminal capability should migrate towards or favor those sort of strains that are both efficient to deploy, effective in what they do, and then also enabling victims to get their data back because otherwise there's no incentive to pay if you don't think that your data is recoverable. That's kind of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was pausing to let you get in. I realize I've been talking for a while. No, it's kind of interesting. Like the criminal networks are very much focused on business, making money. But then what can we say about more nation state and state use of ransomware? Because, I mean, we can kind of say like WannaCry and North Korea, they were using it to make money or presumably to make money. But then you do have the most famous example, not Petya. And then at the top of the show, you mentioned the Ministry of Taiwan coming out and saying, 
you know, it's China that's, you know, they're the culprit in attacking, you know, these various industry verticals. So what can we say about sort of the difference between these criminal networks, how criminal networks use ransomware and how states use ransomware and, you know, whether, you know, whether or not they're just using the same sort of software and capabilities just for different ends and different tactical and strategic ends. Right. So since by its very nature, even if in ideal cases, a criminally motivated ransomware strain should be recoverable. If it's not, then you've basically incentivized your victims to not work with you, to not pay up, you know, and and tracking some of the experts in the criminal markets on these things, like, you know, the entire idea is that you want to make money off of this. So if it's not something that is recoverable in some fashion, you've kind of shot yourself in the foot and undermined your own operation. That's kind of what blew the whistle on NotPetya was in looking at the encryption routine, the, the victim identifiers, the keys were randomly generated in such a fashion that even if a victim tried to negotiate with the supposed entity, criminal entity behind it, they couldn't get a decryption key back because that information was unavailable to the attacker. So it created a non-monetizable or uh, non-recoverable sort of pattern. WannaCry had some issues, but at least was you know, presumably designed by a gangster criminal regime. I mean, we're talking about a uh, government that does everything from counterfeiting currency to manufacturing narcotics to raiding Bitcoin exchanges. Like uh, Ransomware seems like it's something that's kind of in their ballpark for we used to do. Uh, ways to illicitly raise funds. Not not Petya really designed, especially given the initial focus on Ukraine and the Ukrainian business market through the MEDOC accounting software, which ESET had a really great write-up on how precisely that worked in terms of the initial kickoff to the NotPetya campaign. It seemed like it was des- probably designed to be focused and then got out of control, which is the interesting bit because of that combination and this is something I really want to emphasize, that in looking at NotPetya, the primary mechanism after the supply chain aspect that it spread wasn't the Eternal series. The Eternal series were definitely present, but the primary mechanism and the, the first attempt was through credential capture and reuse by trying to then remotely move within the network by using stolen credentials. Only if that was unsuccessful would the malware then pivot on to the SMB series of exploits, which is interesting. Uh, on the one hand, it, it's a nice failover. Like these are still fairly popular. And while WannaCry prompted people to patch things fairly quickly, at least for external facing hosts, you could probably find some internal non-internet facing hosts that were still vulnerable to that. But I almost look at it, especially once it became clear who was involved with it, that we're talking about a Russian government sanctioned operation executed by the Sandworm Group, that it's almost like sticking a thumb in the eye of the NSA at that point where, hey, we're going to use your exploit as part of this, or just toss it in there or whatever for funsies to make you look bad. But the the upshot to that was, and, and this is something that I've argued about in in writing, and I'll provide some links to this so you can include these after we're done here today, that it's almost like it's spread too far, that it's one thing for Sandworm to continue to kick the poor Ukrainians between turning off the electricity, launching various disruptive or wiper attacks with NotPetya being one of them. It's another thing, though, for that to spread and start impacting organizations in Western Europe, in the United States. Now you start getting into areas where, whoa, while nothing actually really meaningful happened out of that, aside from some public 
finger waving from governments of, you know, this is your fault and you shall not do this again. It's not outside of the realm of possibility, or at least at the time, that if, say, the U.S. government, the U.K. government knew that this was a Russian government offensive operation that resulted in critical infrastructure disruption in these countries, that that might prompt a response. And it still is unclear what kind of response that would be. A you know, hack back operation by one of these states. And we know that GCHQ, NSA and others, and even entities like the Dutch or whatever have quite capable entities and tools at their disposal, or could it be something even uh, more damaging? Eventually we wound up at sanctions, which while that might seem somewhat weak overall, still has an economic cost. And so you could look at NotPetya as being almost too successful or overly successful which is why as we started moving forward in time and why I spent a lot of time looking at the Norse Kedro case with the Locker Go the, the disruptive like variant of Locker Goga in 2019, that if we could look at that as a potential state-sponsored action to disrupt a fairly major commercial entity within Norway with operations internationally, like it almost looks like some lessons were learned that we can have a disruptive piece of malware that masquerades as ransomware, but we need to make sure that there is some way of decrypting files that are encrypted. Otherwise, it just you know blows the cover right off the bat. It just, that doesn't mean that we ever have to have the intention of decrypting it, but at least it must be technically and logically possible to do so. Then add on top of that a means of controlling or limiting spread in such a way. So in that case, the Active Directory compromise and likely pushing out a malicious group policy item uh, or similar update in order to seed malware through the network so it doesn't spread beyond the initial victim's boundaries and you don't end up with that collateral damage that can potentially produce uh, net side effects that you don't necessarily want. And then just let it go from there. And you have a disruptive event that looks very much like a ransomware operation with you know, maybe you need to assume some things about the victim in question that they have no desire or legally are unable to pay the ransom for one reason or another, but you have something that results in a significant disruption to operations that looks to, for without you know, probing further, like just yet another ransomware event. The Chinese, potential Chinese examples in Taiwan, a uh, little different. And I have to confess, I haven't had a chance to dig into those in as much detail yet. It's been a very busy couple of months in information security, especially from the industrial side. But you know, even if we look at these as trying to operate in the same sort of swim lanes as criminal ransomware, being able to decrypt operations, doing so when given money, you still, given the targets in question, had essentially some of the crown jewels and commercial-facing critical infrastructure elements of the Taiwan economy that were impacted. So the chip manufacturer, chip fabrication plants, the oil and gas distribution to consumers. And so even if there some willingness to recover or whatever, you still inflict economic pain and disruption on Taiwanese society, which if this was a Chinese government or Chinese government sanctioned operation, that kind of feeds into a potential narrative of continuing to put pressure on Taiwan in light of other political items. You know, another interesting item, it, actually I'll let you if you have any questions or follow-ups from that, but then there was a slight pivot that I wanted to make for targeting. So, oh, no, no, no. Um, for a second. make the go ahead. Just so, so one interesting thing that we've observed. So, my current employer, Dragos, we focus on industrial 
control system cybersecurity. So for the longest time, we didn't care about ransomware because like, okay, the, the argument that we'd previously make is that you don't go after power plants or water treatment plants with ransomware because it's one thing if you accidentally bork a city government or whatnot, like, yeah, that's very painful, just as the people of Baltimore a couple of years ago, but no one's going to die, nothing's going to blow up or something along those lines. You do that in a electric utility, your potential for second order or unintended uh, side effects from disruption go up a little bit. And that might attract the attention of people that are willing to find you and punish you for that. Well, 2020 has proven that assumption to be very much wrong, as we've seen at least and you know this appears to be criminal operations, but again, potentially opening the space for others to piggyback on this, that it's been open season on the manufacturing environment, certainly between Honda, Fresenius, their Fresenius medical groups, manufacturing operations seem to have been the focus, although some of their service operations appear to have been targeted as well. And then a bulk of other manufacturers in 2019 were targeted through Megacortex, later incorporating some of the process skills specific items that were deployed side by side with Megacortex in a script file were incorporated into a standalone piece of malware that we refer to as Ekans based on a mutex value that it creates. So we started to see industrial focused or industrial targeting malware, which was really interesting. And then as we get into 2020, we've seen this sort of uh, ransomware deliberately going after critical infrastructure entities like so Alexan is kind of an interesting item. It sounds really scary. Uh, if you don't know a lot about how power systems work, it's that, oh, it's like the entity that ties together the UK grid. Uh, not quite. They don't have a control center or anything like that. It can cause some economic dislocation and certainly make operations more painful. But if you don't necessarily know how things work on a technical level, it seems like a very juicy sort of target. And then going after other entities like the, uh, I can't remember the, my Portuguese is terrible, or rather it's non-existent, so I'm going to butcher the name if I try to say what it is, but EDP, the Portuguese electric operator that has operations in multiple countries, was hit by, I believe, Ragnar Locker earlier this year that resulted in operational disruptions. We had NL hit just in the past week with a Ekans variant that resulted in disruption at some of its subsidiaries, including in Argentina, at least, it appears so based on that company's social media posts uh, to consumers. So what's causing this? Well, I mean, you know, it could be that, especially amid the COVID-19 pandemic, where you have a lot of entities that are cash-strapped or not operating or operating on skeleton crews, well, people still need power. People still need these critical infrastructure vari variables, and presumably they're still getting paid and making some sort of revenue. Maybe they're the ones that uh, criminals are assuming have the ability to pay and so go after these entities or they're entities that have to operate because of that critical infrastructure aspect. And so there's a greater incentive for these organizations to be responsive to ransom demands. The upshot to that, though, is that as we've seen increasing criminal interest in these networks, just as we've seen the potential ability of state-sponsored activity to piggyback on ransomware to potentially cause deliberate disruption or maybe to sort of blow the bridges after a intrusion to cover tracks, that this now extends into critical infrastructure sectors that, you know, one of the arguments that I make in industrial security is that doing a industrial-focused cyber attack is very hard. And I've written extensively on this and we've seen, you know, with the exception of a couple of incidents, a lot of failures and how these sort of attacks are put together based on an, a lack of understanding or you know a slip up here or there or something specific to the environment. But 
if you just nuke every Windows machine that happens to be linked to an industrial operation, you can achieve a pretty good operational impact without actually touching a PLC or an industrial specific computer. And one way of doing that potentially is that if you were to get ransomware into a operational network and execute it in a widespread fashion, that produces a disruptive impact that could be almost as effective, maybe even more effective than something very specifically tailored to an industrial environment. So if we're seeing criminals get more interested in this space and operating here more frequently, that opens up a deniable space for other nastier entities to piggyback on that and with greater resources and perhaps greater targeting specificity to use this transition of activity towards more sensitive targets as a way to masquerade or uh, cover up potential, you know, cyber warfare operations against certain targets by trying to pass it off and potentially passing it off quite effectively as just another ransomware incident, only one that maybe went a little bit further than anyone thought. That's, that's kind of interesting to me because it almost seems like what you're describing is overwhelming or potentially overwhelming operational success. But at the strategic level, I'm having, I'm kind of having a hard time like describing what you're saying as a strategic success, because it almost seems if a criminal network or if Russia, China, Iran, the big three or whatever, attack a industrial, like let's say they excel energy here in Colorado. Like that, that almost seems like that's, that's a immediate red line that when it's crossed would force sort of retaliation from the United States to whatever actor or, you know, Maybe maybe we should get on a more simpler level and say, what is like strategic success here? What is sort of the strategic point of sort of leveraging such a high risk target in terms of a ransomware attack? Mm-hmm. So, and I think you made an excellent point there that, and this is why we've seen things like disruptive industrial or critical infrastructure events have taken place essentially in conflict zones, whether that's Ukraine, Saudi Arabia, which for all intents and purposes might as well be a conflict zone uh, in the Gulf region with respect to Iran. But we haven't seen anything along those lines in the US or the UK or similar countries. Why? You said so. That is a red, that is almost certainly a red line that will prompt some sort of response. What that response is, we're not quite clear yet, but it, it will result in something. We can be very sure of that. Well, in that case, if I am trying to nudge things along to weaken or cause significant consternation for an adversary of mine, so you know, one of your classic big three entities or whatever for uh, malicious cyber operations. You know, my nightmare scenario right now is that, okay, if I'm Russia or China or any other entity's national command authority, like I want to inflict pain on say the United States, but I obviously don't want to get caught or at least not convincingly caught such that I can justify or, or enable some sort of retaliation against me. But I need to do this in a way that has some penumbra or some cover that allows me to blend that in while also being quite disruptive. So, for example, you know, taking for we've already had a chaotic year. 2020 has already been, you know, quite the shit show for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, It's going to get worse as we get into the fall and we've got an impending election that's going to be pretty nasty, I have a feeling. Well, if you have a, you know, along with all of the unrest and uncertainty that's going to encounter that, if you also have 
semi-targeted power disruption events that occur at one or more major, or even not major utilities, could be at the municipal distribution level, uh, especially as you look at some of the entities that operate in the East Coast or the Northeast or, or whatnot. And, you know, you have ransomware, um, air quotes around that, that resulted in a rolling blackouts or a lack of service for a period of time or an inability to adequately control the electric system uh, in some part of the country for a period of time in conjunction with other civil unrest, like, woo, that produces a really toxic mix of potential results. And you do so in a way that makes it very difficult to convincingly and publicly tie it back to where it came from, that it was a state-sponsored event as opposed to just, oh, criminals got very aggressive and lucky here guess we're gonna have to you know hope that we can find and prosecute these guys in Romania or you know wherever else they're operating from it it creates for at least a possibility I'm not saying it'll necessarily work because there are a lot of resources that can help in unmasking these and I think we saw that with the subsequent attribution by various governments for the NAPECHI activity to sandworm enabling sanctions and, and other activity but it provides a very interesting possibility to execute attacks that are generally seen as being off the table short of active conflict and enabling them in a shadowy sort of sense to feed into existing disruption or societal problems and doing so in a way that has a certain aspect of deniability to it, or at least one can think that it might have a certain degree of deniability to it. Again, there's, I'm sure, plenty of secretive sorts of levels of access and uh, other things that might allow for the U.S. SIGINT system or other entities to unmask such activity, but to do so publicly would be rather difficult. So I want to maybe switch footing to something you've kind of already touched on, but maybe we could uh, develop the point, which is ransomware as information operations. So, so information operations, as, as you know, sort of, you know, you need an audience, you need a channel and you need a message, right? So you need to deliver a message to an audience via channel, but you, you've kind of touched on this, that ransomware could potentially be as a tool in information operations, but sort of develop that out for us. You know, how do, how do we incorporate the ransomware, you know, the disruption element of ransomware into our understanding of information operations? And what does that kind of look like? Mm-hmm. So on first glance, you know, I think when most people will think of cyber and information operations, they think of a, you know, some shadowy contractor in Eastern Europe posting provocative things to Twitter or whatever in order to sow discord or, you know, similar sorts of things. A online friend of mine, Active Measures LLC or whatever is what they post under whatever, like puts it this way. It's like, hey, Sergey, what do you do? It's like, you know, I, I post frog, make American Nazi. Like, really? That, that's what you do? And it's like, well, it seems like that's what people were doing in 2016. But then, you know, ransomware or disruptive malware with indeterminate intent, as we start expanding this out a little bit, is interesting because it almost starts getting us into a realm of Cyber terrorism is a very loaded word because, you know, we typically think of terrorism as someone ideologically focused and then causing death and destruction or whatever as a means to draw attention to their cause. This doesn't quite get to that level like a car bomb or something really nasty or whatever would be. But if we look at this from the perspective of how the economies of Western Europe, North America, Japan, and South Korea are designed and the state and nature of the information networks within these countries that we have very networked, very increasingly cyber dependent economies. We saw this with how NAPET 
you know, zipped around the world really quickly and causing lots of dislocation. Well, one of the sort of uh, things that keeps all that together is like some degree of confidence, almost faith, that people are operating these things in a sane, safe, and sustainable manner. That, you know, we can get away you know, you talk about power companies in the United States that we don't need to have manned substations across the country, but can have everything centralized at a single control center that can run. You know, we saw this uh, with a disruptive event, actually, uh, a control center in Salt Lake City, Utah, that had a probably untargeted uh, denial of service against them that resulted in loss of control over wind farms in Montana and elsewhere, uh, that we have a very networked, very distributed sort of society. Well, there are economic benefits that come with that in terms of efficiencies, in terms of what we're able to do with minimal number of resources. Well, if we start having an entity that appears criminal, but maybe is financed or goaded into operations by a nastier source that begins causing doubt or by showing the degree and extent to which something is seemingly strange or you know removed from everyday life as you know theoretically criminal ransomware gangs operating somewhere else in the world can cause a very acute disruption to everyday life because they're impacting things like city or local governments electric utilities water utilities critical manufacturers that was one of the things with Fresenius that was interesting is that you know some of their manufacturing lines support some of the ongoing efforts to combat the covid-19 pandemic that if we can start casting doubt that we're able to function as a network society is that that starts producing real economic and social consequences in terms of stricter regulation, less appetite for distributed operations, which means that we have to start investing or recreating sort of analog systems where digital ones had taken over, which means that we're probably going to be paying more money for things that it really starts inducing societal costs and eliminating some of that confidence that underpins a lot of the economic system. So it's a, it's even more subtle in my opinion than the sort of information operations that you can talk about with respect to influencing elections and other things along those lines, but potentially far more powerful, at least as you start expanding your time horizon beyond, you know, the couple of weeks that a disruption might take place to then follow through to, you know, executive orders or calls for regulation or greater oversight of how the private sector digital economy works, because now we start talking about real long lasting consequences and how technology is integrated into our lives all because that we start having a loss of confidence in the ability of private industry, the private sector to manage and secure its networks, thus leading to these sorts of disruptions. It's kind of interesting because I, for this interview, I kind of flipped through Andy Greenberg's Sandworm. I think, yeah, it's Greenberg. I almost said Sandberg. <laughs> but it, it was kind of interesting because like in 2017, when Not Petya hit, there was a lot of memes and a lot of like images of the ransom note. And then I think there was one in a restaurant where it's like, due to the disruption of ransomware, we don't have any chicken. It was like Kentucky fried chicken in Ukraine. But yeah. It was very interesting because the chapters on Maersk were were probably the most disturbing chapters in that book because here you have a global shipping network worth you know hundreds of billions of dollars and they literally they had to stop operations and the only thing that saved them was literally having a domain controller somewhere in Ghana that you know the power had gone out in Ghana and they weren't able you know it wasn't hit 
it, it's kind of very interesting, like that almost like ransomware, you know, you know, almost sort of highlights this sort of interconnectivity as, as weakness and the need to develop resilience because, you know, it's, it's, it's this sort of very interesting comment that sort of ransomware has forced us to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one thing, you know, I, and some of this might come off as fanciful, uh, fanciful or whatever, what I said previously, and would require both a degree of coordination and playing the long game that maybe a lot of entities just aren't even really all that uh, interested in doing. Although uh, if more information comes out about the potential Chinese involvement in the Taiwan cases, I think that could be a really excellent and very interesting case study for this sort of activity moving forward. But even absent that, even if we just focus on criminal entities and their continued ability to use and abuse this setup of, you know, just how most organizations have created, maintained, and secured their networks is that the private sector and the digital economy overall is going to face severe consequences if and when they see something along the lines of like what you said with Maersk, you know, disrupting one of the major global shipping companies around the world and causing backups at the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach or something along those lines to the extent that just-in-time shipping now becomes a fantasy and the wheels of the physical economy begin grinding to a halt is really scary. And while we can say that these are doom and gloom sort of scenarios that are unlikely to happen, people are starting to pay attention to these sorts of scenarios. And if organizations want to be left with a freer sort of hand to manage their own entities and not have to deal with sort of cybersecurity requirements and regulation for their businesses as enforced by government entities and all the red tape and headaches that that will uh, create, they kind of need to start getting on the ball now and getting ahead of these, even just the criminal aspect in order to make sure that people are confident in the ability of private industry to either defeat, defend against, or rapidly recover from these sorts of attacks without giving in to paying ransom to continue this market to sustain itself. It's kind of interesting because it almost seems like you're saying, in order to, in order to, be, to fight ransomware or to sort of mitigate its consequences, it's really an issue of resilience. You know, beyond yes. obviously like patch your shit, you know, uh, have a well-developed security program, but it almost like the big sort of strategic and political sort of solution seems to be develop resi- resilience, you know, develop a backup to this just-in-time logistics network or, you know, have backups or whatever. I mean, you know, maybe sort of more simply like what is, what can be done to to deal with ransomware and its sort of consequences. Right. And the thing is, is that most of private industry already does a reasonably good job in planning for similar sorts of events. If you just look at traditional business continuity planning um, and disaster recovery plans that, Hey, if the, the, best example of this that I always like citing, and I hope your audience is primarily American because they'll be the only ones that probably get this is Waffle House. So if you look at Waffle House, the chain of 24-hour restaurants or whatever in the United States with the overwhelming presence, mostly in the Southeast, that their disaster recovery operations are legendary in uh, many circles for being able to quickly adapt supply chains, restaurant operations to regional disasters like major hurricanes um, because they've thought about it, planned through it. They have both a you know, a trained, practiced leadership in running these sorts of operations, and they take it very seriously. 
we need to start thinking of cyber as not just being, we need to make sure that we can block, defend against, or stop these sorts of things, but also in the inevitability of a breach, but there's also the investment in operational planning, recovery, and restoration such that even if something like a nasty wiper, you know, here I'm not thinking something, you know, shady, potentially wiper like a, not Petya, but something like the LDOS raw disk wipers or whatever associated with so many Shamoon operations that have hit the Middle East over the years, you know, or the Sony Pictures event, for example, that even in, in a very nasty incident such as that, how do we make sure that we get stuff up and running or can we make sure that we get stuff up and running in a way such that our organization continues to function and that the entities that are dependent upon the organization don't lose confidence in that uh, organization's ability to operate. Obviously, we can never be perfect and plan for every potential contingency, but certainly things like have offline backups of known good, last, known last good configuration and relative data and do so on a frequent ongoing basis. Given how the environment has of all of the last three years, there's already a backup industry, whether you're talking about things like Iron Mountain or you know whoever else out there. So these things exist. We just need to adjust some of the thinking that we've had along things like disaster recovery and business continuity planning to incorporate cyber-specific aspects and treat these sorts of things as you know disasters equivalent to a hurricane or a tornado or a similar sort of natural phenomenon and build that into business practices to make these not you know, potentially organization killing events, but things that while they would be very painful are still recoverable. That's kind of interesting. And I maybe want to, I want to push back on this point because Waffle House seems simple enough, right? It, like at a sort of company level, it seems simple enough, but like when we talk about resilience, how do you know, how does the concept of resilience fair with the concept of complexity. So, so the example I would use is something like, let's say you have a hospital that, you know, patches everything, you know, they don't get hit by ransomware, or at least are able to sort of mitigate and to sort of be able to avoid any meaningful consequences from ransomware, but the underlying transcription company or the underlying billing service. So, I mean, it, it just seems like, like when we start talking about resilience and resilience is a sort of form of defense and mitigation, like how do we sort of deal with sort of the overwhelming complexity that software has introduced into our lives? It's not even just software. And I think you touched on a couple of good points there that it's not even just the hospital, but it's their billing provider or their transcription service or whatever other third party that they rely on for their operations in order to do business. And we've seen a trend in both state-sponsored intelligence and uh, intrusion operations, as well as in potential criminal operations of targeting that critical third party in order to indirectly impact other entities for whether that's just to get access and steal secrets or potentially fuel other sorts of activity. And I think this is where things get hard. Unfortunately, there's no better way of putting it. There's no magic wand or no blinky box that one can throw in the server rack that's going to fix these things. But a lot of organizations have been really quick to 
see the savings and the efficiencies associated with operational or business process outsourcing, moving things to, you know, pick a company, HP, IBM, Wipro, whomever, instead of doing that sort of uh, work internally and not thinking through that, yeah, it might be cheaper, but what have we done to our attack surface now and to our ability to manage our own operational resiliency as a result. You know, we might have a five nines guarantee from this or that provider, but what does that mean in practice, especially if that provider itself is compromised in such a fashion and have to deal with multiple impact entities at once? And those are hard questions that I don't think have been satisfactorily even asked, let alone answered from just a strategic planning perspective of how we have potentially weakened our ability to manage control and adjust security positions based on fundamental business decisions that have been made over the last 10 or 15 years with respect to how we have created interesting links and dependencies that have made the job of cyber criminals as well as far worse actors a lot easier if they're able to get access at that level of operations. So I want to maybe switch to the idea of what is the future of ransomware? So I know a lot of like what our conversation has been about describing the now or describing what has already happened. But, you know, when you sit down and you sort of think about, you know, ransomware and, you know, disruptionware or extortionware or whatever you want to call it, like, what do you, what do you see as the future? What do you see as our horrific or awesome or whatever uh, future of, of ransomware? Okay. So I think given what we've observed just over the last 10 or 30 really years, kind of as, as we led the podcast off or the discussion off is these entities are incredibly dynamic and evolve quickly to respond to market pressures and defender responses. So for example, like you said, extortionware, what we're seeing is an ability of ransomware authors and executors to move beyond just the encryption stage that, oh, you do have backups and can restore operations. That's great. We're going to start publishing all of your uh, proprietary data and protected employee data on the internet unless you pay us, of potentially shifting away from a availability focused attack. Is data available or is it encrypted at rest and we can't get at it? And moving more towards a confidentiality attack of like, oh, well, we were still able to break in. Even if you're able to restore operations, we were able to gather all this information to either embarrass or potentially harm you far worse as a result of that success. So we're, we're seeing that adaptability in the face of defender attempts to try and get around the ransomware problem. Because the thing is, is that at the level of extortionware, this really looks no different than just a very good pen test at that point because you don't need to deploy a noisy tool across the entire network. You just need to break in, find interesting data, and then be willing and have an avenue to publish it while negotiating a way to uh, get an organization to pay for it. So that's one uh, route that it, it looks like the, ran ran the ransomware economy is moving into. Another route is in terms of greater operational understanding and uh, risk acceptance by ransomware entities. And this is where or why ransomware has become more of an item of interest to me over the last couple of years because of the increasing amount of industrial specific entities that are getting roped into things. So for example, the script objects associated with some versions of Megacortex that have been incorporated into the Ekans family of, of ransomware includes function 
kill or task kill operations that target things like databases and licensing servers, and also things like data historian processes associated with industrial control operations. The reason for this isn't to try and disrupt the network, at least not directly, although if you do this incorrectly or uh, arbitrarily, you can produce that even if that wasn't your intention, but really to remove file locks on critical files like industrial control data, licensing data, database files, mail server files that would otherwise be locked and controlled and unavailable for encryption in order to allow for that infection again to propagate beyond just files at rest to operationally critical files that you can't necessarily back up very frequently or very often without having either a hot spare that you can switch over to in, in process or some other more complex functionality. So it's really increasing the ability or the willingness of ransomware operators to take potentially dangerous decisions in order to enable a more disruptive, more noticeable sort of infection event. And that could be driven by defender responses or the ability of defenders and organizations to weather some of the more classic examples of just encrypting all of your documents or something. So that's another interesting evolution that could have very interesting effects in terms of how these operations impact organizations. And then lastly, and I know we, I, I, we've probably spent a lot of time discussing this just because it's the thing that interests me the most, is I, I, I will not be surprised to see something similar to a not petula like event if we haven't already seen it and just didn't realize it take place where the increasing scope, increasing virulence of ransomware like in Ekans or some of the extortionware activity we've seen is leveraged by state interests in order to execute a deniable disruptive event somewhere in the world. And that gets scary because now you're talking about an entity that isn't worried necessarily about providing good customer service to make sure files get decrypted, but really just make, trying to make sure that they inflict significant operational pain on an entity or entities for some political purpose, which changes the calculus enormously, while at the same time making it difficult from a attribution and potential retaliation standpoint to accurately prosecute that activity. So on that note, this was our guest, Joe Slovic. We were talking about ransomware. And thank you so much for, for being on the show. Yeah, I hope that was interesting. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>